Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began when a pastor I was working for asked me a very important question. What's more important, he said, the Bible or tradition? As an evangelical in my early 20s, I thought the answer was easy. But as I began digging into the formation of the Bible, into how the scriptures were written and collected and preserved, I bumped into this thing called the Catholic Church. It's inevitable, impossible to avoid in a study of church history. And it was then, as I began reading primary source documents written by actual Catholics, that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was almost completely wrong. My understanding was based on misinformation, and more often than not, simple misunderstandings. This podcast exists to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week my guest is Devin Rose. Devin Rose is a Catholic apologist, writer, speaker, and an app developer. And I had the privilege of sitting down to talk to him about his latest book and the online community that surrounds it, Lionheart Catholic. Devin's first book, The Protestant's Dilemma, published by Catholic Answers Press, was one of those absolutely formative books for me during my conversion to the Catholic faith, and I'm definitely going to have him back to talk about that book. But today we're talking about what he calls the ingredients for becoming a saint. One of the absolute riches of our ancient Catholic faith is how big and beautiful and diverse it is, and how many different ways there are to practice it. Devin sits down and gives us some of his favorite ways, tried and true, that the saints practiced their faith and glorified God. It's a fantastic episode. In 1633, the townspeople of Obramagau, Germany, asked God to spare them from the Black Plague, which was sweeping through the region. Well, God answered, and in return, the entire town promised to put on a passion play every ten years. It's been happening ever since, and it's happening in 2020, and select international tours and cruises want you to see it head over to Select International Tours and Cruises to learn more. The link is in the show notes. Thanks to Select International Tours and Cruises for their support of this show. And thank you to my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and those who have given a one-time donation to the show at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. I have two new supporters to thank, so thank you Suzanne, and thank you John S. You guys make this show possible. God bless you guys, and thank you so much. Now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview with Devin Rose. Please listen and enjoy. 
Hey friends, and welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Devin Rose. Devin is a convert to Catholicism from atheism by way of evangelical Protestantism. He is a Catholic app developer, has created a number of online courses and programs to help Catholics with everything from pornography, addiction, to Catholic mental prayer, and he is the author of a number of fantastic books, including The Protestant's Dilemma, what I like to call the worst best book ever, I'll explain that later, I promise, and his latest Lionheart Catholic, How to Become a Saint in These Dark Times. Devin, I'm very excited to welcome you on the show. Thank you for being here, and hello. Hello, Keith, and I also am delighted to be here chatting with you today. <laughs> well, we're off to a good start then, I think. <laughs> All right. So, Devin, you're a convert uh, like me, and actually, your fantastic book, The Partisan's Dilemma, was was certainly formative for me on my own my own journey. If I remember, it came out at just the right time, kind of near the end of my own conversion process, and it was like fuel for a fire that I think the Holy Spirit had already started under my feet. Uh, I said before in the introduction just now that I often call your book the, the worst and best book I ever uh, gave to a friend, the worst and best book. Because, you know, when it came out, I read it and I was really affirmed by so much of what I've been thinking, so many of the difficulties I was experiencing as, as a Protestant, difficulties that had these elegant and ancient solutions in the Catholic Church. And so I remember trying to start up a little discussion group around this book of yours with an evangelical friend of mine, one of my closest friends. And our goal was to go through the book a section at a time. And we never even made it past the first section, I don't think, because at the time, he was just nowhere near ready to hear some of these dilemmas as you present them, um, as I was ready to hear them. I, I ate it up. Now, I've since learned about the idea of paradigm shifts. I had Dr. Doug Beaumont on this show at the beginning of this podcast, way back when, um, to talk about the idea of how we transition from different faith views. And maybe more fruitful and meaningful and a bit less crazy way uh, of, of sharing my faith than giving someone this book that just goes through all of these really poignant problems with Protestantism. But back then, I thought it was a great idea. So I call it the worst best book because it's maybe the best presentation of all these challenges to Protestantism, in Bible alone and challenges of interpretation of Scripture and church unity. But for me, at that time in my faith journey, it was certainly the worst book to give to my friend. He wasn't ready to hear any of these challenges. <laughs> All that to say that, Devin, you do a fantastic job collecting and synthesizing and presenting in a meaningful and coherent and easy-to-understand presentation uh, different Catholic ideas. You know, you did it so succinctly in this first book of yours that I read and devoured. And in Lionheart Catholic, you likewise present a kind of collection of ideas. You call these ingredients. Can you talk to us, first of all, about what prompted you to collect these ingredients? And what's your goal with this book? And then the community you've kind of made around it. Uh, what was the goal of all of this? Yeah, uh, well, thank you, Keith. And just briefly on the Protestant's Dilemma, I uh, I ran into the same thing because when I presented essentially those arguments to my own Protestant friends and thought, surely they're going to see this just like I did. And of course they didn't. Matter of fact, not one of them became Catholic and we didn't get far either. So I had the same experience. And what's interesting is, you know, 10 years later, or eight years later with Lionheart Catholic, 
I learned a little bit about how is it that you can help someone see what you've seen, right? And you talked about paradigm shifts. Ultimately, it, whenever you have like a paradigm shift, you you have some sort of epiphany. And so I wanted in this book to share these different ingredients, which are Catholic practices and teachings and truths. I wanted to share those with people, but I wanted to share it in a way that they wouldn't just say, oh, you know, I don't need that, or I've heard of that before. And so the route I went here then was, what if I told a story of how I came to an epiphany that led me to discover one of these saintly ingredients whether the rosary or adoration or mental prayer. And I think we're going to talk about a few of these. So that's what, that's what in my mind had me put the book together this way. Now, the broader reason of where this book came from was I, you know, have now been Catholic for 19 years and really enjoyed the pontificates of Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict Pope Francis has posed more of a challenge in the Catholic world, I would say. And I didn't know for a long time, how do I, how do I handle this? Because I support the Pope. I love the Pope. I pray for the Pope. No matter who the Pope is, or no matter whether I think that he's doing the right thing or, or the wrong thing or whatever. So what I, what I did realize, though, was, huh, in 19 years, I've now discovered all these treasures in our Catholic faith, but there's no, I kind of had to find them one by one stumbling around here and there. What if I could present them in a cohesive way, kind of like what you said, to my fellow Catholics? And that's what this book came from. Well, that's a that's a that's uh, an interesting thing, because when I became Catholic, I mean, I, I guess I've did kind of what you did. You you stumble around looking for these different things. And one of the amazing beauties of the Catholic Church is just how many different ways there are of, of being Catholic, of expressing your faith day to day. But like you said, at the same time, you, you sometimes come across these things, sometimes, of course, by divine providence. God will lead you to in the direction of certain things that he knows are the best ways for you to lead your faith life. I think for me, the Liturgy of the Hours I encountered very early on before I was Catholic, and that I'm of a personality where I like that kind of routine and ritual, and so that for me was, um, for, for a certain time in my faith life, very much... The, the route I was going, and it was very much uh, uh, edifying for me. Um, but like you say, sometimes you, you you the church is so big, you can't find these things, or you don't know about these things, and there are so many of them. So in the same way, truly, that you collected together these these challenges of Protestantism, that for me, when I read that book, was just like, yes, these are all the things I'm thinking of here and under one roof between two covers that I could I could unpack and and think through and work through here you've given us a number of these treasures these ingredients you say on how to help us to find that way forward towards uh, ultimately sainthood right by using these different ingredients yeah and with the the challenge that we're seeing in the church and the crises in the church we all have this question of well what can i do and i was reading 
two books recently, one by Cardinal Robert Sarah and the other one by Bishop Athanasius Schneider. What's interesting is they both say the same thing about this. They say, if you want to do something about a crisis in the church, why not start with yourself? Why not start with denouncing your own sin, uh, you know, take the plank out of your eye, become a saint, because it's the saints who renewed the church. It wasn't doing structural reform. It wasn't through committees or task forces. It was to the saints. And then all the rest of that stuff followed after the saints blazed that trail. So that's what then with this, I wanted to say, how can then can we become a saint in these times where it's very confusing? Yeah, that's that's such a good reminder, right? I mean, that, that is... That's the perennial reminder that you'd be reminded of as, as, as Catholics is, is we have to continue to reform our own selves to get anywhere in the church because the church is made up of, of us, like a, a bunch of us who all need to reform ourselves to, to get anywhere. That's, that's fabulously put. So, so I'm an evangelical convert to Catholicism, um, at, and many of my audience uh, are converts or converting or just interested in learning more about Catholicism. I know you too. Are a convert, and one of the enormous discoveries for me as I became Catholic was this thing called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I know I've, I've said this before, but one of the major catalysts for me looking into Catholicism were some of these at the time more emergent social and moral issues that the evangelical church was was wrestling with. And I remember reading through different authors and theologians and watching debates and and watching as different faith communities came down on one side of the issue um, or on a different side of the issue, all using the same scriptures, but ending up with different interpretations. And then I encountered this thing called the Catholic Church (laughs) and this great big document called the Catechism. And I remember just being kind of in shock and awe when I found it, because my experience of how we did doctrine, how we formed our beliefs, how we knew what we knew, and where we could find out that stuff. Well, that just didn't exist, as I discovered, in evangelicalism. Um, so I, I wonder, thinking of these ingredients, uh, digging into these different ways that we can forge way towards sainthood, can we start with where you kind of start in the book, which is the catechism, one of your ingredients. Can you explain to listeners what the catechism is for those non-Catholic or new Catholic listeners and why it's so fundamental to understanding and, and living out our Catholic faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the catechism, which is one of the ingredients of the saints. And a matter of fact, there were saints who wrote catechisms at different times and there've been different catechisms, but it, the catechism is a summary of the church's teachings. And what's nice about that is, as you um, you know pointed out, well, there's 2,000 years of the church, and therefore 2,000 years of doctrine, of writings of the saints, of debates with groups ultimately deemed heretical, and papal bulls and encyclicals and everything else. And d- at different periods of time in history, there have been Catholics who have... Uh, you know, come together and said, well, we need some kind of good summary of what the church teaches so that we can instruct the faithful on it in a way that's very coherent. And, and so um, we have the most recent catechism, which fortunately for me came out right 
mm, I don't know, maybe less than a decade before I ultimately converted and I bought it as a Protestant. I kind of like you though, a little bit before I had shock and awe about it as well, but I thought, aha, those Catholics have made a mistake because they've put all their false teachings in one short volume (laughs) that I can read and then, uh, you know, find all the unbiblical ones and destroy those arguments. So that's when I first got the catechism as a Protestant. Of course, as I'm reading through it, I'm finding lots of teachings I think are false, but I'm also finding a very well put together logical reasoned set of teachings that all cohere together. And I was impressed by that enough to where when I started looking into some of the specific arguments and thought, huh, the Catholic church is now citing Bible verses and pointing to history. When these teachings were challenged early on by people who are deemed heretics yet, who thought very similarly to me as a Protestant That's what started to give me pause, and I realized, oh, the Catholic Church may be right about some of this stuff, and that's what ultimately, you know, led me to become Catholic. (laughs) I think it's just so fascinating. I mean, I uh, had the experience, I mean, similar to what you did, you you begin to dig into the catechism, and you find, first of all, that the Bible is cited all over the, all over the place, which was shocking to me as a, somebody who thought that the Catholic Church was not very biblical. The Bible is is cited over and over again for everything in the Catechism almost. And then uh, when I, I'm thinking of the section on the Eucharist where it quotes just verbatim from Justin Martyr from like the 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 earliest of the early church documents describing what the Eucharist was and what they believed it to be. Uh, which which was wait a minute like, like this this these earliest Christians believed this and the Catholics are using that like the early church the defender like you just come across all these shocking things and just having all of that all of what the Catholic Church teaches in in one place I mean I guess this for me was was so much so different than my experience as an evangelical well, I was just pouring over different theologians and looking in different texts and trying to ultimately interpret scripture but then through the lens of certain theologians or certain or certain uh, pastors that I thought were the most in tune with with the Holy Spirit I mean whatever that really meant to me I, I I'm not super sure but then here was the catechism where it, it's concise like you said it's all um, coherent and it's all right there for us to find if we have a question we go right there and so many I maybe you have the same experience that I do I get all kinds of uh, emails and, and messages on Facebook, and I've, I've been out there for a number of years writing things, blogging. I get all kinds of feedback and questions. And so often, if you just say, well, have you read what the catechism says about this? <laughs> because there's the wellspring of of what we believe. There's what we believe written down there, uh, and it answers so many questions so succinctly and, and often better than, I, than I'd be able to. Yeah, and or the reason I put it in as an ingredient of the saints is all the saints knew their faith. And so if you as a Catholic want to know your faith, because it's true, because Christ teaches it, well, you have this handy book broken up into bite-sized paragraphs. You should simply read the Catechism. And actually in Lionheart Catholic, um, my, my membership, which we'll talk about probably later, I say, hey, hey guys, you'll need to read the Catechism. Have you read it? If not, you have to start. 
and just take it bit by bit, just like I tell them to read the Bible, you know, as well. And actually the catechism, it came up recently. There was a friend of ours. He's a Catholic guy. And he was uh, saying, well, well, the church teaches um, X and I won't go into what it was because it's not important. And we said, oh, no, no, no. We think that the church teaches Y. And he said, no, 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 you're wrong. Well, we ultimately just went to the catechism and there's like a paragraph and we sent it to him. And then also then that paragraph cites has a citation. You look at the bottom. Oh, it's citing the Council of Trent, this particular paragraph of the Council of Trent. So we then went to the Council of Trent and now you have this full exposition in the Council of Trent of this teaching. And so the, the cool thing about it then is, is it's like this guide that you can go even deeper into the Catholic faith, into different encyclicals and ecumenical councils or saints' writings as it references them. So it truly is an ingredient of the saints, and it's one that's so handy for us. I mean, for seven bucks, you can buy a catechism, and now you know the church's teachings. Yeah, and like you say, I mean, not only did some saints write catechisms themselves, right? They, they knew their faith, and that is such an easy resource for us to know our faith, just to read the catechism. I mean, I'm thinking of, of uh, I'm, I'm teaching RCAA at our parish, I'm having to dig into the catechism um, over and over again every week as I begin to build these, these classes, and in a way that I haven't necessarily had to dig into it so often. And, and I'm, I'm still finding things that I'm like, I'm like wow, the church puts that that way. You know, I had somebody um, uh, ask me some questions about infant baptism, and then you dig into the catechism and, and look at the root of, of what baptism means and where it comes from, and then some of the objections that this individual had to the practice of baptizing infants, the catechism actually answers and says, well, you know, some groups have said this, but here's what the Catholic Church believes, and here's why. So this succinct answer that I, I didn't even realize um, didn't even think or frame it that way. Here's the catechism then helping me not to only understand my faith better, but then to be able to defend my faith, to be able to explain my faith confidently, knowing that this is what the church says, right? Yeah, and the, the beauty of it is, is that in the Catholic faith, we don't have to invent it. Typically, some saint has said it much better than we've ever said <laughs> it and did, that, and did it so like 500 years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I want to talk next about uh, Eucharistic adoration. And this, for me, again, was one of these huge attractions of Catholicism. And, you know, you read in some of the writings of the Catholic mystics, this idea of God wooing you or romancing his bride. And in a sense, uh, Eucharistic adoration was certainly something that was wooing me into the Catholic Church. Because, first of all, I couldn't believe that such a thing existed. It sounded just so incredible. And, and second, well, I couldn't just wait to experience it. <laughs> Uh, can you explain, especially for our non-Catholic listeners, what Eucharistic adoration is and why you listed it as one of the important ingredients in becoming a saint? Sure. Yeah, um, Eucharistic adoration is where our Lord is exposed in the Blessed Sacrament for Catholics to adore. So since we as Catholics believe that um, the consecration in the Holy Mass, when the priest says, this is my body, that that bread is transubstantiated into the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord. Well, so a practice developed, uh, the, a beautiful devotion, um, as the church uh, went along through the centuries of, well, we could basically put on display our, our Lord and the Eucharistic host. Typically, it's in some beautiful gold, um, you know, statue type of thing called a monstrance. 
and people can simply go and pray in the presence of our Lord. And I, like you, and I found out that, oh, our Lord is allegedly present here. I was Protestant. I had to go. I wanted to be there because I thought, if this is, this is the Jesus who I've longed for. And the Catholics are saying that he is present here on earth in this real way, in a sacramental way. And sacramental doesn't mean symbolic. It means real. And so I went. I was at St. Mary's in College Station because I was going to Texas A&M. I was a senior. And I crept in there and saw all these people kneeling. Some were reading a Bible. Some were, I don't know what they were doing. I was a little bit, uh, you know, woo-wooed out by it. But I just went and sat there and thought, okay, Lord, if you're real, I want you to give me some indications here. And so Eucharistic adoration, this amazing gift that we have, we as Catholics can go, you can go into any Catholic church, even if our Lord is not exposed in the Blessed Sacrament, you'll go in, you find the tabernacle, and typically there's that red candle burning by it that's indicating our Lord is present there. Some, you know, churches have, Eucharistic adoration where the Lord's exposed in a monstrance perpetually 24-7 or potentially for some, you know, certain hours. So Eucharistic adoration has been a key part of my life as a Catholic. And not to mention being there for a holy hour each week, you have an hour where you can pray and you can read the Bible and the catechism and pray the rosary and do all the things that a saint should do anyways. I remember it being so, so shocking for me to find out that the Catholic Church, first of all, I mean, coming to understand what the Eucharist was and the Catholics believed uh, that Jesus becomes present to us in this in, in this way that was unthinkable for me as an evangelical. And then realizing that the ancient church also believed this uh, was shocking. I felt like, well, what am I missing out on my, you know, most of my life as an evangelical uh, Christian? But then I don't know what it was exactly, but yeah, the idea that I can I can go and I remember going the first time and and just sitting in the presence of um, of our Lord in the Eucharist in this great big beautiful monstrance. I remember just staring at staring at that uh, the host in the middle there and thinking like, well, it still looks like just bread, but like Jesus, I know we know is there. I mean, staring back at us in a sense, like right here in the in the room. And then you just, I mean, I just fell, fell to pieces in a sense, just thinking of this amazing grace that God has given us in not, not I mean, we had the Holy Spirit, uh, of course. God has not left us here on earth. But, you know, the uh, Jesus who came incarnate remains among us on earth in this, this different way. But this incredible way, like I can be in the room with Jesus here in the church praying uh, 10, 10 feet away from um, what is essentially very much really Jesus, right? I remember just being blown away by that. And of course, that, that experience can transform people towards sainthood, being that near to, to, to Christ in a very real sense, right? Yeah, yeah, Jesus is there so is so intimate and so humble which is exactly the way our lord is right he lets himself be handled by human hands he he gives the possibility of 
being ignored, right? That he's there and there's no one there, right? There's no one there with him. And that, that um, beautiful passage, of course, from the garden of Gethsemane that always calls to mind where Jesus says, could you not stay awake and watch for one hour with me? And, and I think, Oh man, that, that kind of convicts me in my conscience when I think, can I not spend one hour with Jesus? <laughs> so this, I, I think even St. Justin Martyr, who you mentioned, he says very much these things like, you b- believe that Jesus is present. Don't, like, you're not going to see it with your eyes, right? You're going to believe it in your heart because it's our Lord and he taught this. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such an amazing thing. It's such an incredible blessing that I... I I had no idea it existed, but as soon as I found out about it, that was one of the things I was most excited about uh, experiencing is this Eucharistic adoration, just sitting in the presence of our Lord. And you can, like you said, pray, you can read your Bible, you can read spiritual readings, and there's a sense that you are doing this in the in the very real company of, of Christ. And there's something, there's something very holy in that experience. I mean, I've done this in a small little uh, Eucharistic Adoration Chapel at one of the parishes. I've done it in a, in a great big uh, uh, basilica before. I've done it uh, in just a regular parish church, but an older style, like from you know the late 1800s. It's still beautiful and still very ornate with statues. And I mean, the context doesn't even really matter. <laughs> what what matters is that closeness to Christ, and then using that time to to pray and to read and to just experience. I've even just sat there in silence. I mean. <laughs> Too. It's just a beautiful time of an intimate uh, experience. Yeah, absolutely. And our, countless people have received so many graces from simply being there in our Lord's presence. There's there's whole orders of nuns who just perpetually adore our Lord and pray for the world. And it's the same all over the world, right? Part of that universal Catholic church is the fact that you go to any Catholic church anywhere and our Lord is there. Right in in that tabernacle in the Eucharist. Yeah, I think of last night as I was locking up the church. I was the last one out after teaching my class, and there was the 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 dark nave with uh, um, the the tabernacle off to the side there near the sanctuary, and all the lights were off, and the one red candle is burning. And I just thought to myself, you know, Jesus is just waiting, I mean, waiting there in the space for us. Like I love what you said about how humble that is. How humble is it that Christ? Uh, lets us handle him, and we 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 eat Christ in the Eucharist and become more like him. And he, he kind of he he waits there in that tabernacle in the dark of the of the of the church, uh, waiting for us to 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 draw closer to him and and to give us that experience of himself. That's just an amazing uh, picture of, uh, and that that makes me as a Catholic. Uh, that draws me closer to humility, I think, to think about Christ being that humble. I think that's a good thing, especially for, for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and one final thought with this, it sort of combines the catechism and our Lord of the Eucharist. I remember when the first time I read in the catechism, and it said, when you receive Jesus in the Eucharist, you are strengthened against future mortal sin. And at the time, I was struggling with grave sin, um, that was probably mortal. And I thought, oh, every time I receive Jesus, I'm that much stronger against committing mortal sin. Wow. I want to receive our Lord as often <laughs> as I can. 
Amen. So one of the other ingredients you discuss in Lionheart Catholic is the idea of St. Uh, Aquinas's uh, virtue principles. And this more recently has been uh, enormous in my spiritual life. I had uh, John Mark Grodi, a good friend of the show, on to talk about virtues, and specifically what the church presents as these cardinal virtues. And I mean, once you begin to explore what the church says about virtue, and as you dig into in your book, the effect of practicing one virtue on the other virtues is this transformative thing, which I think truly impacts your daily life as a Christian Catholic, I mean, moment to moment. So I wonder, could you unpack for us what you say, you know, what a virtue is, and then what the effect of practicing the virtues is in the life of a Catholic on the road to sainthood. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, well, virtue is a habit of doing good, and a vice is a habit of doing evil. And when I became a Catholic, I had a lot of vices, and I had very few virtues. Well, <laughs> that was that was something that was sort of hard to realize, but I discovered it. Uh, and in trying to tackle the vices and form good habits and conquer the bad ones, sometimes when I just went head on against one particular vice, I didn't have much success. And as I learned more about, as you said, well, here's all these virtues, courage and prudence and fortitude and, you know, on and on, you know, purity. The um, I, And I read about Aquinas and, and really, this is like, has its roots in, I think, the ancient Western philosophical tradition of Aristotle and Plato. You had that virtue that sat in the middle between two vices on either side. So courage being the, the virtue, let's say, and on one side is recklessness, right? And the other side is cowardice. And courage is right there in between, you know, it's not courage to, as one man, to storm, let's say, an army of a million soldiers where you're just going to die, right? <laughs> but but rushing into a burning building to save, you know, a person, well, that that is courageous. So for me, this this had this was when I was struggling with the virtue of purity in particular, and I started saying, what if I could grow in virtue in other areas and master myself? in other ways would it also help me with this virtue aquinas said that it would and i kind of put that to the test and it and it did work and now over the past years as i've done this in a lot of different ways where one practicing one virtue maybe it's fortitude you know perseverance all of a sudden that's helping me out in in aspects of my life I never thought of, some of which are not even purely spiritual, you know. Yeah, I think it's really, really fascinating. I mean, I discovered this. I mean, I, my John Mark Grodi, a uh, friend of mine and friend of the shows, he, um, he is, we talked a lot about this in our, in our just interactions personally over email and stuff, the idea of the, the virtues. And I knew for him they were very important. And so there was a time, um, I mean, and you talk about about dark times of, in, in the church and struggles to understand um, teaching that comes out that's confusing. And, and, and I was going through a time when there was so much coming out of different places from different aspects. And I wanted to just comment on all these things. And, and I keep, and then I was reminded of, of my friend, John Mark and how he talks about prudence and talks about temperance and the virtues. And so 
I just emailed him just this kind of brain dump of like, help me. Like, I want to, I want to talk to this guy and this guy and this guy. And everyone just seems to be just totally like out of left field. And what should I do? And, and so I had him on the show to talk, to talk me down essentially. But this is when I began to understand the virtues. And for me, like you say, I began to really put into practice, uh, trying to, trying to maybe, uh, be more prudent or kind of temper my, I would see something online that I really wanted to comment on. And, and so I practiced, uh, you know what, I'm just going to wait and, 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 and be prudent and, 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 uh, practice some temperance here and not just jump in with my idea. And, and what I found, and I think what you found too, in, in outlining this as, as an important ingredient for the saints is that I've actually began to, to, to experience a change in my character, which as a, as a rather stubborn, uh, despite the name of the podcast, I'm not altogether cordial, uh, uh, in my day-to-day interactions with, with people. I, it's a, it's a working title. I'd like to say. It's an aspirational yes, word. It is, it is. <laughs> but I, I'm noticing, I mean, and I'm noticing as well that, that, that God is rewarding that patience. I mean, are, are those those virtues, right? That that prudence, perhaps. So, for example, I wanted to comment on something I saw online. This this YouTube apologist who just drove me crazy with his ideas about Catholicism that were totally backwards, and I don't even know where they came from. And I just wanted to, oh, I wanted to say something. And I want to make a video, and I'm thinking, I'm looking up webcams online to buy a webcam to get into YouTube, and I'm thinking, oh, am I gonna? I have to get in here. And then I just, I just thought, no, no, I need to think of the virtues. I need to think of because these are these ancient ways that, like you said, the church has. Uh, given to us to order ourselves to be more like Christ. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm going to practice prudence. And we have to practice these virtues, uh, right? So so I waited, and and then I found a much better way of dealing with this by finding the right guests for my podcast and having this guest come on with his theological training and, and much more patient than I would be to explain, well, here's what Catholics really believe about these topics. So, I mean... I have found that only is practicing the virtues making me into a more Christ-like person. God rewards God rewards the practice of of virtue is what I'm finding. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's interesting. The I the way that God seems to work most of the time is in ordinary ways where instead of just granting you miraculous super virtues, instead he likes to make you work for it. <laughs> and that's something that it's interesting. So I started uh, lifting weights recently because I had a bunch of back problems. And in lifting weights, I, I started realizing, oh, hmm, when I lift weights, then my muscles, by God's grace, will get a little bit stronger because I, I challenged them. I tested them and I put in the hard work. Just like my spiritual muscles when I challenge them to be patient or prudent, they get a little bit stronger, right? It's the supernatural equivalent uh, at the natural level of how our bodies work, right? You, you practice something and you get better at it, whether it's hitting a tennis ball or, or you know, catching a baseball um, or lifting weights. Um, but our Lord doesn't let you short circuit it or shortcut it. You have to put in the work to do those things. The reward is your life is better, and that's and that's a good reward. Um, it, by the way, I've also noticed a big rise in Stoic philosophy and Stoicism over the past five years. 
and it's interesting because a lot of the Stoics, since they're drawing on that ancient Western philosophy, uh, you know, the Greeks, etc., they'll actually they'll talk about virtues too in a similar type of way. So this is this growing thing that sort of presents a an opportunity for us as Christians to say, hey, that's great, you you've come this far. Now come the rest of the way to Christianity. Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess this is too where where. Uh... Uh, the grace that we get in the Eucharist and and the graces that come through the sacrament of, of reconciliation come from to help us in these virtues, right? I mean, we have to practice these things, uh, which is interesting because, I mean, God as our creator has given us these physical muscles uh, that require practice, but also a very analogous uh, spiritual uh, muscle, if you were, that also needs practice and given us grace in a special way. And, and thank goodness, you know, we have this this uh, even more enormous outpouring of grace than I could have imagined as an evangelical Protestant that God gives us in in the Eucharist to uh, to grow in these virtues through through that grace. So it's not just our own exercising and working out. We and He's not as you say giving us this super these super virtues, but He gives us this the grace of receiving the Eucharist helps us to day by day form and practice these virtues. Uh, with that incredible grace, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think if the, if the natural equivalent is like, you have to eat protein and, you know, drink electrolytes to exercise and get strong. The supernatural equivalent is you need grace because if you don't have grace, then no matter what you're doing, it's not going to work any, you know, (laughs) Um, at a natural level. Yes. You might be able to like be disciplined and run a marathon, uh, but you, but you won't uh, be able to do things in a supernatural way that is uh, meritorious for heaven, right? It would love uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, vivifies. So yeah, the uh, virtues, man. And I'm still, you know, I'm 41 years old, and I, I'm still learning, still growing. Though, though the book is subtitled "How to Become a Saint in These Dark Times," it's not me, the master, teaching you know, the young Padawan learners, it's rather, I'm on this journey too. Here's the first things I've discovered in 19 years. I want to learn from all these other Catholics who are also living, uh, you know, on this journey. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And as you mentioned before, there's, uh, we can, we could dig into this more, uh, as well, but there's just some fantastic stories you include in there. Uh, to bring us along on your journey, right? Which, which, yeah, you're not this wise. Maybe, maybe Peter Kreeft could write a book like this, How to Become a Saint, and just tell us the, <laughs> the answers. But some of us are still on that on that journey. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and like you said, with Lionheart Catholic, each chapter is a story, and it's stories of me being sued by a former employer and thinking they were going to bankrupt me, and and having terrible thoughts about them or, or wanting to because they were ruining my life and our daughter getting leukemia and me rupturing lumbar discs trying to do farming because I was trying to, you know, rear my children in the backs of the land <laughs> movement and that didn't work. You know, it's all real stuff that's happened in life. <laughs> so I want to uh, talk about two more ingredients in your book. And as I read your book, I mean, there's so many interesting uh We'll call them coincidences in quotations. <laughs> I would say uh, certainly the Holy Spirit was, was was drawing me deeper into your book and your life story. 
but one of the things you included was the idea of fasting as an ingredient. And I encountered the idea of fasting from Jimmy Akin, a guest on this show, and of course, Catholic Answers apologist, years ago, when he, when he began that journey and was blogging about it and talking about it. And it was this new thing that he was doing called intermittent fasting and was raving about the physical and the spiritual benefits. And so I decided I'd try that too and put it into practice. And uh, it's since then become a very, uh, I don't know, a popular, but it's much more well-known thing that I'm hearing all over the place lately, which is interesting. Um, and it's, it's funny because it's one of those things that as an evangelical Christian, you know, it was kind of like confession. The Bible talks about confessing our sins to each other, but as evangelicals, we had no practice at all of doing this. And the same was with fasting. I mean, in, in certain circles of, of evangelicalism that I that I was in during my undergrad, a few, very few people practiced fasting. Uh, I knew a few guys that did it, and we had a small group together, and we'd occasionally fast together and talk about our experiences and pray. But, you know, like confession, Jesus says in the Bible, when you fast, not if you fast. It's kind of this implied spiritual exercise that, like confession, we, we should all be engaging in. Uh, whether whatever our spiritual, uh, whatever our Christian bent is. But in, again, as a Catholic, encountering fasting then uh, by way of Jimmy Aiken and, and beginning to unpack those, the spiritual benefits, let alone the physical benefits, I was, I was very surprised. So I wonder if you can talk about how you first encountered the practice of, of fasting and why you listed it as an ingredient in becoming a saint. Yeah, it's funny because my first encounter with fasting was as a Protestant as well. And it was not part of my sort of Southern Baptist tradition. But I remember one summer we did a little study and it was called like the spiritual toolbox. And it was looking at some of these practices that, well, technically they're in the Bible and one was fasting. We all kind of looked at each other like, hmm, are we supposed to do this? (laughs) How do you do that? And we never really followed through with it. But I did know one guy who who was had been fasting, and everyone was like, "He's been fasting," and it was, "Whoa, <laughs> you know what? A, what a guy!" Well, when I became Catholic, and of course we had to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, I hated it. I felt terrible. I dreaded it every. I mean, I would dread Lent not so much for giving stuff up, but because. On those two days, I was going to have to fast. So I generally did the minimum. You know, I would eat the two small meals, however small those are, you know. (laughs) And I would eat one full meal, which nowadays I think, oh my goodness, like it's barely fasting at all. (laughs) Um, So that was it until, and this is this interesting thing, kind of like what you did around the time with Jimmy Aiken, probably, I don't know, maybe it was 2017. I had to, at work, had to take a, you know, health assessment. They make it, take it every year. Well, and my fasting blood glucose was in the warning zone for type 2 diabetes. And I thought, oh no. And I didn't, I ate whatever I wanted. And this is, food, talking about virtues, food had control over me. I did not have control over what and when I ate, right? And that had been the case for I don't know, my whole life as a Catholic, I had not trained that spiritual muscle, if you will. Well, I was listening to a podcast of computer programmers, and one of the guys had type 2 diabetes, and the other guy was like this really healthy dude. And the healthy dude said, oh, you need to buy the obesity code book by Dr. Jason Fung. You can reverse type 2 diabetes with 
intermittent fasting. And I was like, I'm about to get type two diabetes. Where do, <laughs> where do I find this book? And so I bought this book and read it and thought, can I really do this? And, and Dr. Jason Fung's like, you can totally do it. You have enough fat on your body that you could last for months if you had to. So that then at a natural level, I said, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try not to eat for 24 hours. Oh, and it was, you know, it was challenging and I drank coffee and I, and I made it. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, I did it. And fasting began to lose its terror over me that it had had for my whole life. And so that was, that was what led me to discover fasting I had always known about the spiritual benefits. Of course, Jesus in the desert, he said, when you fast, the saints fasted, right? It tuned their hearts to God, right? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And now, finally, I felt like I could do it. Yeah. So, of course, this. yeah, you talk about the saints doing it, talk about, talk about Jesus uh, fasting, what were some spiritual benefits? I mean, I know, I know how it has changed me in my experience, and it's such an interesting uh, thing to do, and such an ancient tradition. Even um, as was ex- as was expected by all Catholics at, at many times in history to be fasting for much longer periods than we are now. There, even I mean, the Eucharistic fast—we fast an hour before we receive the Eucharist. Um, you know, that's the bare minimum, but th- this was much, much, much greater uh, in previous times. What Have you found certain spiritual benefit, a particular benefit, or maybe some general benefits of the experience of, of fasting? Yeah, fasting has, for one thing, given me a great confidence that, oh, our Lord has made it, our, made us so one, amazingly, that like we can go for days and weeks without eating anything. And when we're doing that, we're no longer concerned about food every, you know, two hours of the day. Instead, we can be focused on whatever we're doing, whether that's work or whether that's prayer, right? And, we, and it tunes us, it, it like tunes us in, in a way that nothing else does to what's important to spiritual realities and so I've seen the, the the natural benefits, right? Like my blood glu- blood glucose went down. But then every fast, I'm offering it for some spiritual intention. Mm. Um, you know, for that person who asked for my prayers, uh, for healing for that person, for a virtue I need to grow in. And it's become now every every week I fast on certain days. It's just become part of my life. And like you said. You know, and the Eastern Orthodox still do this, and so do the Eastern Rite Catholics. You know, they, their Lent is this huge long fast, and then there's other fasts throughout. We used to have Ember Days, you know, four times a year. The traditional Catholics still practice those. You can still practice them. It was all part of kind of the feasting and fasting of the, the church's liturgical life. We've really lost that in the past, you know, 60, 70 years. But we individually as Catholics can can choose to do greater fasts if we want and it will have these big spiritual benefits yeah it certainly as as you said it cues your, your body like physiologically and then it cues you and orients you towards that the fasting and the and the feasting of the, of the church like i find for me i typically would do uh would do a one meal a day fast 
but then that meal becomes that meal becomes underlined so or so much more important to me and so much more of a thing to me because it's the one time I'm sitting down and then typically with my family at supper time uh, and together breaking our fast and it has a much more meaning uh, is much more meaningful more meaning behind it and it's the same it's the same uh, if we practice these feasts and fasts of the church. I mean, the more we can, I think, embrace the the the, the liturgical calendar and and those times of fasting and whatever we can do to make that more of a of a fast, I think, then that enhances the feasting, right? That makes it so much more important. I mean, if we if we were to uh, a one hour fast before the Eucharist is not is not that big of a thing, and I understand. Um, you know, the, it, it was to make it more easy for Catholics probably to receive the Eucharist at different times. Like it, it didn't removing those boundaries to receive in the Eucharist, and that's a very uh, pious and good thing. I'm I'm sure I, I'm not making those decisions, but 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 you know, at the same time, the practice of preparing yourself a big long fast as as the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Rite Catholics would do before these these feasts. Um, Whatever way we can incorporate that into our into our spiritual lives, uh, I think there's massive, as you would say, I think too, benefits uh, that that changes us in a way that that orients us more to, to Christ, and that feast becomes, you know, when, what for example, when we pray before supper, and I've not eaten that day at all, that prayer, honestly, that prayer becomes much more of a of a of a genuine prayer because I'm that much more thankful for that thing I haven't had all day and I can finally eat, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, and especially since we live in this unprecedented time, certainly in our country, where we have so much food always available, anything you want whenever you want, right? Which has not historically been the case. And so we, and you know that we long for this as people because it explains the popularity of voluntary denial programs like Exodus 90, where it's like, you know, Exodus 90 is like for 90 days, not just during Lent, 90, don't eat desserts. Don't eat this. Take a cold shower. Don't eat uh, (laughs) this kind of food. And there's all, it's just like this whole litany of things that you, you're not supposed to do. And especially in men, right? It's really geared toward men. We eat it up. Like, uh, and you know, paradoxically, because we actually want to do this denial of ourselves, it's very, it's a very masculine virtue, and because the church doesn't demand it of us, Catholics have made up programs that will demand it. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. I think you're absolutely right with that. <laughs> so the last thing I want to talk about. He's another one of these little coincidences in quotes. But you talk a lot about St. Francis de Sales. And he was, for me, another one of these hugely influential saints in my own conversion process. I remember taking his one book um, that he wrote against the Reformers, um, the Catholic Controversy or something I think it's called. I took it to, we went on a vacation to Costa Rica, my wife and I, before our, our, our first child was born. I took that, that book and it fell in the pool and got all weather beaten. And, and, but I just, I read that thing over and over again because it was, I mean, he, 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 here to me was this, was this great saint who did apologetics so well. And uh, you talk about this, and I love this in, in, in the book. You describe this as the idea of explaining your faith and practicing graciousness under fire. 
and you refer to some of these great saint apologists who, who practice this. I wonder if you can talk a bit about some of these these great saints, like St. Saint Francis de Sales, uh, and this idea of defending the faith um, graciously under fire, because I love that expression. Yeah, well, uh, you know, as a Protestant, and then I became Catholic, I never, I didn't know who any of these guys were, whether St. Evan Campion or St. Robert Bellarmine or St. Francis de Sales. But then once I became Catholic and I thought, oh man, I've, I've, you know, rederived all the equations and axioms until I found some of their writings, including um, the one that you said by de Sales. And as I read it, I thought, oh no, this, this saint already knew he already figured all this stuff out. Even just shortly after Protestantism began, he saw right to the core problems with it, exposed it in a logical, cohesive way. I, I honestly, whenever I read that, I, I thought, why should I even write any apologetics book? <laughs> because these these guys, they already did it. And, you know, we actually named our son Edmund after St. Edmund Campion. He was, um, you know, he was in England. He was an Anglican Protestant under uh, Queen Elizabeth's. Well, he ultimately became Catholic, went and studied over in, you know, France and came back secretly as a priest, which at the time meant death if you were, you know, trying to be a priest or offer mass. And the, and the English Catholic recusants who refused to become Anglican, they would hide, you know, all these priests. And eventually they caught him. He was betrayed and they tortured him. And then they would drag him out to be debated by, you know, 10 Anglican Protestant scholars, each with their stacks of books. And he's been, you know, mangled on the rack. Well, and, and yet he kept his composure. Uh, you know, St. Francis de Sales, as, as you know, went to the stronghold in in uh, you know Geneva where Calvin had been so active in Zwingli and he didn't convert anyone and you think well probably someone would just give up after a year or two of that he didn't he persevered with it and ultimately tens of thousands of Protestants were reconciled back to the church so these guys they didn't just show they obviously had brilliant intellects by God's grace but they combined it with the heroic virtue of a saint so that they were they were unperturbable. I mean, if you tortured me and then you dragged me out for a debate, like I'm probably going to be like a wild animal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and instead, St. Ammon Kevin's like, hey, you know what I mean? Whatever you want to do to me is fine, but I'm going to refute you point by point in between the tortures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, like you said, I was... I was floored when I read St. Francis de Sales writing, like you said, right after the Reformation, contemporary in some respects to some of these ideas, and getting right to the core. Like, immediately, like, wait, guys, like, I remember reading one line, something like, you know, oh, by the way, who gave you the authority to start this church of yours over there in, in, in Switzerland? Like, who? Which which bishop? What's his name? And I thought, yeah, like, you... Here's the problem. Like right away, this the the, the here, these are who've literally broken away, and it was so obvious to someone like the sales uh, that the church had passed on this authority through the the apostles or the bishops, the Catholic Church, and this was a clear break, just a you know unmistakably break from this leadership. But like you said, these saints practiced this uh, with this particular grace. 
So I, I wonder, like, how do you, where do you think this grace comes from? I mean, it comes from God, but how do we then, I mean, kind of, you talk a little about mixing in these ingredients and, and become a saint. Uh, how do we get this, uh, this, this graciousness under fire? How do we begin to practice that, to actually uh, be able to do that when we're saying, hopefully not tortured and dragged out on, on the rack, but experience our own kind of confrontations or places where we can defend or explain the faith? How do we come out being gracious? Yeah, well, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, and that's it takes hard work and practice. And for me and most people, it takes a lot of failure. In other words, the number of times when I was not gracious when when arguing for the Catholic faith or debating someone outnumbered the times that I've been gracious. And each time, each time, though, I would think and I would, oh, man, I, I, I know the point in time when I felt that, you know, that heat rise within me, <laughs> just like what you saw with that, you know, that YouTube, I guess, Protestant apologist yeah. was like saying stuff and you're like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and, and, and so sometimes it's, you know, three steps forward and then two steps back. Each time is an opportunity to get a little bit better at it, to learn what pushed your buttons last time a little bit more to recognize the signs when it's happening with the person you're talking to, like they start, let's say, interrupting you. Now, whenever I see that and someone interrupts me, I'm like, okay, already now this is like the water's boiling. And we're not going to, and ultimately, we're not going to get anywhere. We're going to get mad at each other. We're just going to try to win an argument. And even if I'm right, he's not going to come to the, the conclusion because. Uh, you know, his back's against the wall and he, he's in a, he's in defensive mode. Even so, sometimes it surprises me. I, sh I went to Whole Foods to eat lunch with some uh, coworkers because it's right next to my office. And these two guys came to talk to us and they were Protestants. I couldn't believe it. Like, God bless them. They were like, we want to share our faith in Jesus with you. And I was like, wow, that takes courage. You know, in Austin, Texas at the Whole Foods, like the liberal stronghold, <laughs> these guys, they wanted to share their faith with us. The funny thing was, is I was sitting there, I was Catholic. One of my coworkers is Mormon and the other one is Protestant. And I was like, you guys have no idea who you're talking to here. <laughs> talking about Protestant, a Mormon and a Catholic, but they were so um, ignorant. And I say that in the classical meaning of the word, right? They just didn't know. And as they're talking to us, I'm, I'm like, well, guys, like, you don't, where are you coming up with this? Oh, from the Bible. I'm like, well, you know, the, the Catholic Bible has seven more books. And they're like, no, no, no. I mean, like the Bible, like the ones you, the one you buy at Barnes and Noble. And I'm like, well, just because you bought this book at bought the Bible at Barnes and Noble, how do you know that's the books God inspired? And they just, they couldn't fathom it. They had never heard of it. And I was just thinking like, Lord in heaven, these poor Protestant guys have no clue what they're talking about. And it, and I was irritated. Like I was irritated by them. This only happened like two months ago. Um, and trying to practice graciousness under fire. Cause I wasn't ready for it. And I was with coworkers. So it's like a weird dynamic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can't just go full Catholic. Cause then my coworkers are like, Whoa, Devin's like a weird Catholic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I'm comfortable <laughs> with that. Uh, all this to be said was like, that was a situation I'd never been in before. And you will be in situations you've never been in that you don't expect. And like, you're going to Thanksgiving dinner and there's a new brother-in-law 
and he's like a wacky Buddhist or something. I don't know, you know? <laughs> so, so it takes practice and hard work and failure and asking forgiveness and trying again. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I recently encountered a, a coworker who just dropped the dropped the bombshell that they had gone to Bible college. I had, I had no idea. I don't I don't work at a church. I don't work in any you know religious field or anything. And I was surprised that this coworker had gone to Bible college, totally unprepared to to talk about Christianity or Catholicism. And, and I thought, wow, I need to I need to to practice, like you say, practice this. I spend tons of time recording these podcasts and writing articles, and I live in this world. But just so out of context, it's like, wait a minute, I need to practice this more often so that when this happens, like you said, I, I am prepared to, uh, with graciousness, uh, address these things. It, it, it was, you know, it was, it was, yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it's even different from 20 years ago. I could talk about my Catholic faith much more at work. And I work in the tech area, tech sector. And even in the past 20 years, I've seen how it's it's less and less sort of okay to be you know, sharing your faith in a work setting. And it's part of this sort of marginalization, right, of of things that are of of the faith. Uh, and so it takes it takes courage and also prudence to know when is the right time to to really engage with this. Is this the right time, the right setting? I mean, I've had a, I've had an atheist coworker tell me and a Baptist uh, coworker to sh- shut up. Basically, he's like, "Hey, you guys have been talking about this stuff. I just can't stand listening to it. Can you, you know, please be quiet?" You know, another time a coworker was over. It was another different Protestant coworker and me talking about something, and a coworker came over and she said would you guys stop talking about this? Otherwise I'm going to have to start telling you all about karma and you don't want that. That <laughs> <laughs> was, and I was like, uh, okay. I, I was kind of like, bring it on, bring it, bring the karma. I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, it's so interesting that, I mean, I guess you, you, you learn to practice kind of discernment and prudence around when it's best to talk about these things. But then those small seeds you plant, uh, when you do talk about those, those things, when you, you, I mean, I guess put some of these ingredients together that you describe in the book and begin to, uh, you know, l- learn your faith and know your faith and be able to defend and explain your faith better. Once you, once you begin to do that and, and plant some seeds, even the smallest seeds that you often think were, well, that was nothing, that, that conversation with that coworker that was just a passing kind of comment about like, oh, yeah, what, you know, I went to church on the weekend, like it was a great experience. You know, those those seeds can come to incredible fruition uh, with patience and, and with the Lord working, uh, as far as we can tell, behind the scenes to bring something out of those conversations, right? Once we begin to learn our faith and know our faith and then def- describe and defend and explain our faith better, there's there's so much in those small encounters, I find. And I'm, I'm sure you have those experiences, too. Yeah, yeah. And in Lionheart Catholic, I think I share maybe two or three stories of actual coworkers of mine who became Catholic after years of conversations. And um and they it took a while for them to, but they did. Um and then we became the godparent of one of them, and then one of the guys I still work with. So even people realize too, like my coworkers realize like, huh, Devin never uses profanity. Mm. And Every now and then they've remarked upon that, like everyone uses profanity, but Devin doesn't. Hmm. And they think that means I'm a nice guy. 
right? And and some of them know like, oh no, there's something else kind of going on with that, right? But even even something as simple as that nowadays, the bar is so low that that's a sign. <laughs> you know, that's like a witness to people. Yeah, you know, I think back to. Uh, when I first became evangelical Christian in high school, I was about 14, 15, and it was my my best friend who we'd never, ever talked about spiritual things ever in our lives, but I knew from the way he lived, I knew from this this peace that I got, this, this, this kind of overriding peace that I got when I went to his house to hang out as a kid growing up. And so when I decided to to that that life was bigger than than my small experience that there was something out there uh, a thing that's called God I didn't know what it what it was or who he was or anything I went to my friend I went to my friend who 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 was different right he was he was living differently and, and in this way that I knew he had something that I didn't have and it turned out he was a Christian and so that began my journey right yeah that's interesting um because this that same thing happened to me in college there were evangelical Protestant Christians who had a joy about them that I did not have and that I wanted. And that was a witness. <laughs> I think we have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, I think we do too. I'm about to watch your journey home, you know, after this, your journey home. No, oh, it's not that great. <laughs> Listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. I wonder if you can tell us more about the book, where we can find it, uh, the stuff you have going on around this whole kind of idea of Lionheart Catholic. I, I want to hear more from you. So what can you tell us about this? Yeah, let me give you the, the long and short of it. So lionheartcatholic.com, I have a link there where you can get the book. So I'm offering the book for just the cost of printing and shipping and handling, which works out to about $7.95 a book. So you can just go on my site. I haven't even put the book on Amazon. It's only on my site for as dirt cheap as, as I can make it. Um, because I want to get, first of all, the book in people's hands. And so that was the first goal. And a year ago when I kind of, this book popped into my mind, I had, you know, I had gotten off Facebook. I had gotten all this stuff because like you, I had wanted to just start engaging in all these conversations and arguments. And there was so much divisiveness happening with everything Pope Francis said, it was like a maelstrom. So I stepped back from it all until this book kind of came into my head and said, yes, this is what I want to give to the world, right? This is my small contribution that I think will be helpful. So that's where the book came out of. Um, then I realized, huh, I also would love to talk to people who resonate with this message. In other words, if they think that the mission of Lionheart Catholic is to renew the church by becoming a saint. Uh, and I thought if people resonate with that, I want to have a way of like basically being together with them. So I made a membership program that's a monthly fee. It started at 10 bucks a month. And basically like we have a private community. Then I, we have um, all these different courses like you talked about on mental prayer, which is one of the secret ingredients, conquering sin, starting a small group. I have several others. I've put into this membership. So um, people who are interested in that, you know, after they read the book, they basically say, hey, yeah, I want to be part of this. And um, and then we do things like every week, every month in the in the membership, we read a book. So we wrote, read Cardinal Sarah's book, The Day is Now Far Spent. This month's book is Bishop Schneider's Christus Vinsheet, which has been an awesome book. Those guys, have, those bishops have been inspiring me. Um, and the, in the, the, the seedling from which all this came was uh, I have a mobile app called Pray Catholic Novenas, 
And so it's just a mobile app for praying novenas, which I made four years ago because I always forget to finish a novena. <laughs> and so that, so I made that novena app and I was like, but then people would email me just like they email you they would email me and they would be having all these issues. And I'm like, well, that's in the catechism. I'm like, oh, well, you just need to learn how to defend your faith. You just need to go do this. Oh, that's just, that's mental prayer. Oh, that's the rosary or adoration. And I realized like novenas, yes, are one devotion, one practice that's very saintly and good. But these Catholics, they've discovered my novena app, which is awesome. I'm glad they're praying novenas. But there's all these other things. And so that's what then fed into Lionheart Catholic. Um, so you actually, some people, someone posted on Facebook, oh, I read this book uh, by this guy, Devin. And then someone commented because I was watching it and they said, oh, yeah, I, I think I have that guy's Novena app. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, um, it's, so that's the long and short of it. I encourage people to get the book uh, at lionheartcatholic.com. And if you want to order multiple copies, the more you order, you know, the, the more I can like reduce the, the cost on it and ship out to people in bulk or whatnot. Well, that sounds fantastic. And like I said, it's, it's a fantastic book. You do a fantastic job uh, in, in, in all of your, all of your books, taking these things and, and making them accessible, understandable, and collecting them together and explaining why those make so much sense. And you throw in some, some great stories in Lionheart Catholic as well. It's very enjoyable. Keith, it's been, I mean, I, you know what, Keith, like, our mutual friend Doug Beaumont uh, introduced us. By the way, Doug and I talked for years before he finally became Catholic. That was a years long <laughs> thing, and he had a lot more to lose. You know, he worked at a Protestant seminary and all this other stuff. But it, me, you know, meeting you here, I'm like, man, I'm so honored. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for like, reading these books. You know, you like sometimes you, you, know, you, you write something or put something out there, and you're like, I don't know whether anyone is benefiting from this or not. It's always encouraging to. to to, you know, some good. You certainly pushed my my friend away from the church with your heavy handed dilemmas, but I don't think that was more my fault than suggesting that book than anything. But you know what? Blame that on on my Catholic Answers editor Todd because he he for the subtitle he made the subtitle "How the Reformation's Shocking Consequences Point to the Truth of Catholicism," and I was like Todd. Like, really, is it really shocking? You know, and he's like, I think it's shocking. I'm like, okay, I guess it's shocking, uh, but it's not going to be as palatable to Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a fantastic book. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you uh, for the fantastic books, the work you're doing for the church. I want to say God bless you, God bless your family, and God bless this fantastic uh, mission that you are are working on to help us become saints. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Keith. <laughs> Take care. God bless. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Devin Rose. Please make sure to come back again because I'm going to have him back again for sure. I'm working on a fantastic panel episode with Devin Rose and Dr. Doug Beaumont. It's going to be an absolute barn buster. <laughs> Is that an expression? I don't know. 
thecordialcatholic.com for show notes and links to Devin's website and his fine books, and for my blog as well. Check that out. Emails to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from you and write back to all the emails I can. Please subscribe to the show. Please follow it. Please leave a rating and review if you can. That helps to push the podcast out to new people. And please do, if you can, support this show at either patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. All the money goes back into the show to help continue growing it and reaching new people. It all helps. And thank you to those already supporting the show. You guys are incredible. I'm at The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, at Cordial Catholic on Twitter. Please like those places as well. Please follow me if you can to get updates and let me know who you are and why you're listening. I love to hear from you guys. I'm praying for you. Please pray for me too. Thank you so much, guys. Talk to you next time and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.